Hey everybody and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about the direction of Rails, where it's going, where it's come from. Uh, but before we get started, let's introduce our panel. We have James Edward Gray from Gray Productions. Um, he's worked on things like uh, Scout and, and a few other handy tools like uh, Faster CSV. Uh, welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you. We also have Aaron Patterson from the Rails core team. He works for AT&T Interactive. Um, he's contributed a few uh, little-known libraries like uh, Nokogiri, and uh, we'll welcome him as well. Thanks. We have David Brady from ADD Casts uh, from Shiny Systems, and uh, he's contributed a few things, including an interesting library called TourBus that you can use to do uh, load testing and stuff on your applications. Yep. And finally, we have Peter Cooper from... Uh, the Ruby Show, the JavaScript Show, Ruby Inside, Ruby Weekly, JavaScript Weekly, and probably a few other things that I've forgotten. And I submitted one patch to Rails once, and it's in Rails. How awesome is that? One patch, baby! Nice. <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. Um, I'm also the host of the Rails Coach podcast. Uh, TeachMeToCode.com has screencasts and podcasts. And uh, I am getting ready to launch a Rails summer camp. You can sign up for it at teachmetocodeacademy.com. Ooh. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> wow. So, Is that the future of Rails? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Rails moves kind of fast. So um, there's been a bit of discussion out there. I don't know if you guys have been following some of it. Um, uh, there was a guy named Steve Coast that wrote, what the hell is happening to Rails and kind of went on a rant. And then Yehuda Katz re replied to some of the discussion. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in you guys' take on some of the changes that we've seen in Rails lately. Who said what now? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, I, I don't know if I can summarize it really. Some guy was like, Oh no, Rails is getting for what what was the summary of his article? Like it's not for new people anymore or something like that. That I was yeah, that was the general gist was well, there were a couple of things. One was that it it moves too fast and so nobody can get good documentation around it. And uh, the other argument was yeah, that uh, the Rails core team is adding their pet technologies to it and it's becoming harder to learn. So everybody go back to Rails 2, learn Rails 2 and then learn Rails 3. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's an interesting point. Um, and I, I think I'm I'm skeptical of it too, although I can sympathize with it in some areas. So like, for example, uh, you know, let, let's just take resource routing. You know, if, if we look at resource routing in Rails, well, you know, that's usually, you know, to step up to that, you gotta learn a few things. You gotta learn how to declare the route. You gotta learn which routes it defines by default, which ones you're supposed to send where, what if you need to do special routes, you know, things like that. Whereas if you go back to Rails when it when it did basically uh, you know, what was it, action ID, uh controller action ID, you know, slash slash slash. Mm -hmm. uh, that that was pretty darn easy to learn, you know. You you passed a hash to all the URL methods and stuff like that. Now I'm not arguing the old way was better. I think the the new way does have plenty of advantages, you know, for it. But but it probably does add a bit to the learning curve that's going on, right? And I think um, 
I think I think that's just one example. I I think there are others where, uh, you know, it's Rails for being a framework that's famous for being very easy to get into. You know, probably has uh, grown up a little in some areas, and and maybe that is requiring a bit more uh, to get under your belt. Uh, you know, which if it's worth it, it's probably okay. And you know, I I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. And if it requires us more to learn about how web applications work and stuff like that. I assume that's also a good thing, but I, I'm very interested to hear the other thoughts too, though. Yeah. Well, I think as soon as, I mean, as soon as you start adding any new pieces of tech, that's, that's something new for people to learn. I mean, we can't just stay, you know, stay with the old stuff forever. And also the other, the other thing I want to say about it is you don't have to use it, right? Like, you can go ahead and use Rails 3.1 without ever learning anything about CoffeeScript, if you like. Uh-huh. Hold on a second. I got to put another quarter in this phone, or it's going to cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually going to say there, there's a little bit of noise in the background there. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, my my take on this is is a little bit interesting. Well, and it really just brings out more questions because. Um, you know, Steve Coast kind of says, well, it's, it's harder for new people, but you know, my take is, is which new people, because we have, we have people who are converting from things like PHP or, you know, some of these other frameworks that are out there from Python or Django or this or that. And then you have the people who are new to programming and new to web development, and they're just picking this stuff up. And, and I'm thinking, okay, well, if, if you were just coming over from another web development framework or language, then yeah, you know there, there's a little bit more to to know about, you know, as far as CoffeeScript and SAS and and the routing and things like that. But you know that that's all part of the the framework. But if you're new to uh, to web development anyway, then things like SAS and CoffeeScript actually make it a lot easier because it it uh, abstracts away some of the ugly parts of those technologies like javascript and sas that you know that or css that there have its have their warts that are a little harder to deal with i think that sas especially is is uh you know i i assume one of the main complaints in the article was targeted at the asset pipeline just because it does change you know how how several things are done sas seems pretty simple to me just because it's you know, pretty much you can use it and still have normal CSS right in there, you mm-hmm. know, so so not really a big deal there. CoffeeScript is maybe a bit more debatable in that, you know, if you're really going to use CoffeeScript, then, uh, then you probably do need to spend a little bit more time, you know, learning yet another language. And, you know, it, it kind of gets annoying of how many languages do we need to display one frickin' web page, you know, but uh, I, I think there's a little bit of that syndrome. What about... Um, you know, with the asset pipeline, I think that's a an interesting choice for additions to Rails, just because it really does add a lot as far as like you know structure and stuff. Aaron, can you tell us what you think about that? About the asset pipeline, is it is it really going to be as great as it looks, or is it you know really trying to do too much? Oh uh, well, I think like some of the technology in it is actually important. Well, is very important. Much of the technology is important, but like the stuff that I think is immediately useful is, for example, the compression compression stuff and um, putting putting assets together. Like 
that's stuff that we actually do in production all with all of our websites, but um, it's not built into Rails. We had to use third-party, you know, third-party stuff to deal with it. So I'm actually pretty excited about those particular things in the asset pipeline. How it'll play out, like moving our apps to it, I'm I'm not 100% sure. Like I'm not going to know until I actually do the work. So hmm. interesting. Now I'm I'm going to give you a low pitch because you've you've done a lot of work on like bug fixes and performance in Rails three. Um, that when Rails three first came out, there were there was a really big performance hit that people took upgrading from Rails two to Rails three, um, and it seems like you've worked some of that out. I'm I'm a little curious as to where those problems were, and why they were willing to release a Rails three that was actually slower than Rails two. <laughs> well, it <laughs> it's it depends. So the thing is, the problem is like the the one major one of the major performance issues I dealt with was um, in Active Record, and the problem is like it's a the actual performance degradation was like um, an n squared basically n squared graph, but the problem is like you don't. Um, if you're running very small, you know, very small iterations, like your n value is very small, you won't actually notice, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the thing is like, it's not that we were willing to release a slower one; it's just that we didn't know it was slower. So I told you, yeah, <laughs> till somebody there tried any... to really use it. Exactly. Yes. So I mean, one of the things like that. Somebody else has pointed out has pointed out a speed regression in 3.1, and we're not going to release 3.1 without this this particular regression taken care of. But one of the things I want to do in the future is start um, like we need to start having benchmarks and benchmarking them over time. Like we have some we have some benchmarks in the in Rails itself, like you know benchmark this and that. But we don't actually run them on like a regular basis and then track the track the values over time. Because really, like I think that's the only way you can detect these sorts of performance degradations. Huh. So, yeah, I I don't know if that answers the question very well, but that's my thoughts on it. I think I think it does give us a good idea, just because you know. Yeah, you you didn't know, but at the same time, I guess, I guess it does bring up the point that you're making that you know, hopefully, you're testing the the benchmarks in the future so that at least if we're gonna take some kind of performance hit, that we're aware of it. Yeah, and we know if if we're gonna take a performance hit, we should at least know what it is and like you know why. Yeah. I mean, so, so oh, go ahead. I, I was gonna say that. Uh, well, you know, people are complaining that Rails is getting worse in some areas as far as, like, you know, uh, for a newbie to get in. I do think it's getting better in some areas, uh, and the one I would name is just um, uh, the code, I think, is more accessible these days. Like, there's some parts where it's gotten worse, like the stack has definitely gotten deeper, and and that makes it a bit harder to track, but uh, that when they when they switched away from heavy metaprogramming to uh, you know, breaking everything out into modules and just including those in the right places and letting Ruby's uh, method call system work like it's supposed to work, I think Rails got much easier to understand at that point. So I'm hoping that that makes contributing and stuff uh, more popular, easier to get into. Readability has definitely gotten better in 
3.0, in my opinion. Um, some of the, I don't know, some of the asset pipeline I'm not super excited about, but um, we'll fix that over time, I guess. Well, I think I think that's one thing that we see with our uh, development processes, too, is that I never write pretty code the first time. <laughs> I usually wind up writing ugly code and then fixing it. So... Yeah, I mean, as long as we, that's the thing is like, as long as we have tests, you know, we have tests for it and it works. So now that we've gotten it working, then we start moving on to the refactor step, right? I mean, this is the, that'll be the refactor step of our, you know, red green, red green cycle. So, I mean, it's not the prettiest to read, but you can get through it if you, you know, dedicate a few minutes. Yeah. So, so. Go ahead. Sorry, Chuck. No, it's okay. Um, I, I really want to uh, see what speculations people have as far as things that, uh, you know, maybe we would like to see in Rails 3.2 that isn't coming in Rails 3.1. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Oh, boy. I did, but I think that somebody else should go first. <laughs> More cowbell. <laughs> no cowbell? No, <laughs> so. more, cow- more cowbell. More, more cowbell. cowbell. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know like what we're gonna see in Rails three two. Obviously, I don't have Aaron's inside uh, peak. I was trying to think of what I want to see uh, in Rails three two, and I, I don't find myself coming up with like fifty immediate things that I want to throw out there. So uh, I think I take that as kind of a good sign. I think maybe the one thing I would like to see Rails get into a bit. Um, you know, there's lots of systems like this, but. Uh, Heroku's new setup where they use um, the, is it called the proc file, I think, the through Foreman where you set up various processes. Um, I think that's pretty much a requirement of any non-trivial Rails application that you're going to have, you know, at least a background working process or something like that. And, and I would love to see Rails get a little bit into just making it easier to set something like that up or maybe giving giving different ways to load the Rails environment. Like in the background worker, you know, you generally don't need the entire stack. You know, just the database side would be would be enough or giving us ways to even load on slimmer environments and stuff like that for an API or setup like that. And I know that you we do have those tools like through, you know, Metal and, and the the router, which is definitely improved. But I think seeing Rails get into that and, and make it something nice like Foreman does with its proc file or something is is a feature I wouldn't mind seeing in the future. But you know, I'm I'm totally just uh, pie in the sky wishing now. I have <laughs> no idea if they would ever do something like that. Yeah, background background processes seem pretty important to me. Like it's I, that's another thing that we do in all of our applications at work. So I I would kind of like to see that too. But my I think my my goals for three two are not um, not so lofty. yeah i think one thing that i would like to see as well is i've dealt with applications that need to connect to more than one database at a time and that whole process seems a little bit clunky to me you know you can still put it in the database.yaml and you can still tell it which connection to use but you know it just seems like it it seems like it it i don't know it, it kind of exposes the the trick behind some of the rails magic that i wish i just didn't have to think about I think one of the things one of the things I want to do for three two is um, like right now right now in Rails our um, 
base class test case. Like if you go all the way down to the base class, it's actually test unit test case. Mm -hmm. And what I what I want to do is I want to change that to be mini test on the base class. And the reason I want to do that is because, um, well, you get all the. I mean, we've talked about the benefits of mini test, but you'll get the uh, spe mini test specking stuff for free, basically. So people can have a specking library built in and not have to do anything. Right. Hooray for that idea. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and you'll also get faster test runs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, another thing. Actually, I have a really awesome idea that I want to put in. Um, so, do you guys use fixtures in your Rails apps? No. Yes. Sometimes. No. No? All right, I do. Um, and maybe we should argue I'm, I'm about... with you. No, I'm with you, Aaron. <laughs> All right, we can, we can argue about this later. I'm happy to argue about fixtures versus uh, factories. But we use, we use a lot of fixtures, and one thing that sucks is it's slow to uh, load those fixtures into the database. Right? Like, that's actually one of the... That is the main startup cost to your test run is loading all those fixtures into the database. So what I want to do is I want to see if I can get those to load into a SQLite database and then cache that loaded database so that your first run, you know, your first run you pay the same cost, but on subsequent runs it'll just copy that that previously re previously used SQLite database so we can get like basically instantaneous startup time to our to our uh, test runs. That's a pretty interesting idea, but the Downside to that would be the test will have to run under SQLite, right? So if you use, you know, Postgres specific queries or something, you'd have a problem with that, right? I think. Well, I think we can do something with other databases. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's actually a plugin I believe for uh, for uh, the Postgres adapter where uh, it throws all the fixtures in the database and then I believe it sets a save point. And at the end of each test, it rolls back to the save point after fixtures have been loaded. Mm. Um, and I, I, my understanding is that's quite a bit faster. So if we could do that, like if we could do that between test runs, I'm pretty sure there's a way to do it for all databases between test runs. We just have to figure out, you know, figure out how to do that. But it should reduce startup startup time on your test suite like a lot. So I mean, a it will for us at work anyway. There's a, a trick that we started doing at Public Engines uh, that we actually ran into a snag where we were trying to move uh, a bunch of our test data and actually some of our production data, but uh, ideally the idea would be to move all your production data uh, to use uh, MySQL's in-memory tables so that it's all in RAM. Uh, and just, you know, there's no disk access, there's just no wait time on that. And we immediately ran into a problem because this was for crimereports.com and we're, of course, we're doing geocoding and we're doing geographic searching and uh, the R-tree uh, indexes can't be stored in, you can only store them in a MyISM or, a My, or an InnoDB table. Those are the only two engines. It doesn't support the in-memory engine. Um, and, and that that kind of highlights James's, James's issue, right, is that if you move, if we're developing on MySQL, and there's this clever slick plugin that runs on SQLite. That's okay right up until we have a spec that actually checks, you know, database constraint enforcement, that kind of thing. If they're not equivalent between engines, then you run into trouble. Um, but I think that would be really brilliant if you could, you know, find find some ways to optionally turn on some performance enhancements and say, yeah, for this for this this sub subset of the test, we're safe and we can do it. So let's just turn it on and run. 
So one of my one of the places I worked, we got we got all of our tests to run. So what we would do is test on SQLite and then deploy to MySQL, and um, we got all the tests to run in an in-memory SQLite database. Mm-hmm. But it turns it turns out that that didn't actually buy us much time at all. Really? Like our main yeah our main our main like overhead was loading all the fixtures into the in-memory database, and then. From then mm. on, like we weren't I/O bound at all. We were CPU mm-hmm. bound on all of our on all of our tests. So putting it in memory didn't do much. Mm. Huh. Interesting. I wonder if that's universal or if that that's just where your your bottleneck happened to be next. Yeah, I don't that's know. That's point. the thing. I don't know. Yeah. I've definitely done some work with the SQLite database where switching to an in-memory database bought me a lot. So it, mm-hmm. may, it may be that. You know, because of the way Rails runs tests or something, I've never done it in a Rails test suite. So it may be that it's just not effective there. But I, I, I can say that SQLite's in-memory database can be lightning quick. Oh yeah, if you're if you're if you're I/O bound, absolutely, it's it's insanely fast. But I mean, we were CPU bound, so yeah. <laughs> it didn't help. We had a, a sysadmin Nazi from hell, and <laughs> everything was on VMs, and the VMs were on the same hardware, but they were firewalled from each other through external hardware. So literally, uh, two machines on the same Zen physical machine, um, 100 kilobyte uh, per second. I mean, just just insane I.O. binding. Just absolutely insane. All right. Well, I'm, I'm and, gonna, and that's a separate bottleneck. That's that's a that's a go attack your IT uh, bottleneck. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm gonna bring us back around to Rails. We we've kind of gone off on this tangent here. Oh um, no, we 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 want all this in three two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, <a tie> <laughs> that's awesome. Can we can we go ha- around the horn on the fixture fixture question? It's it's a hot topic. Sure. Uh, go around the horn and say whether or not you use them or. Yeah, Aaron. Why should we be using fixtures? Uh, so I use fixtures. I use fixtures for a few reasons. One is it will be faster than using factories, simply because of the fact that all of your generated data is cached. Um, and the other reason I use it is I don't know. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I like them. How about you, Peter? I'm. I've even when I've used them, I've always found them a little bit verbose to um, kind of define and work with. But if there were a defense for using them, it would be because DHH likes them. So you know that seems to be a common defense now. Like, oh, I use CoffeeScript. Well, DHH uses it. It must be good. Uh, <laughs> you know, this was a common thing that was pulled up during that whole adding CoffeeScript and SAS thing. It's like, well, DHH likes it. It's his framework. Let's go with it. Um, so yeah, I, I have. I have fixtures on some old projects, but I don't use them on new projects, so that probably pretty much spells out my entire opinion of them. Um, but I'm not against them, and I still maintain them on, on older projects, but they're just not for me now. So I weighed in and said uh, yes on fixtures. Uh, I'm going to qualify that and say that you should use fixtures when they're appropriate. And uh, when should they be appropriate? Well, let me start by saying when they're not appropriate, and that is whenever possible, you should be doing, you know, all your unit tests should be testing the model. They shouldn't be testing, you know, fixture data, et cetera. Um, But a real obvious place where it's obvious to me that you need to be using fixtures is when your database is actually an interface that 
some other process like a like a message queue or uh, a data warehouse is pumping data out and you actually receive data in the database from some other process it didn't it didn't get created and validated by rails you know rails doesn't own the universe anymore it's now just one member of a functioning ecosystem and the data at rest in the database is kind of the API that you have to code against. That's a, a really good argument to be using fixture data. Uh, I will then say that you should only use your fixture data to test the interface of getting data in and out from your database. And then as soon as possible, you should uh, you know, close up that spec bundle, open another one that doesn't use fixtures, and do everything with your models and with factories. So I, uh, I used to use fixtures a ton. Um, and I, I just found I kept getting bit by them, you know, that I would, I would try to ke- uh, test that some page is paginated. So, you know, I would look for X number of entries and, and then, you know, I'd end up making a new fixture somewhere for, for whatever reason. And, and, uh, uh, and, and then that broke other tests farther away. And maybe that's not even a very good example, but, mm-hmm. but you get the idea. I found that as I had to modify fixtures to do something in one place, then I was breaking things in other places and it, it really just got me down. So I did switch to, uh, using factories to build them. Um, I do agree that, that fixtures are faster than factories. However, when I switched to factories, I had this like enlightening moment, uh, that actually I think ended up making them faster for me. And that was that, uh, I don't always need to put it in the database to make the test work. For example, mm-hmm. especially in unit tests, a lot of times I have a method that just manipulates some data in the model in some way and shows it to me in a different way. You know, perhaps it, uh, you know, pulls out an inner field and calls 2i or, or something like that. But the point is I found that in a lot of cases I could just do, you know, model.new pass the field to set it at whatever I wanted, Mm -hmm. and then just call the method after that. And I don't Mm -hmm. need to save it to the database. So I actually now, whenever I can, I do my testing without involving the database at all. And then then when I really do need to involve the database, I go ahead and use a factory to uh, build the object and put it in there. And so because I'm only using factories like half the time or so, then it turns out that 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 actually turns into a win. Uh, the thing I really do like about factories and the reason I could never go back is, um, you know, wiring up associations and fixtures is, uh, to put it nicely, a nightmare. And um, it, with factories, it's great. You know, I can, if I have a user factory and then I have a, an article factory and an article has an author, then I can just say, you know, association uh, user and, and boom, when I create the article, I get the user and everything else I need so that then I can, you know, pull an email address out or whatever. So that's how I do my test these days. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I need to jump in again, uh, just because I need to go twice. Um, because James just, uh, showed me that I'm an idiot that, that doesn't speak English. Um, I use factories exclusively, and when I say when I'm saying fixtures, I'm actually talking about factories that write to the database. Um, because James is right, managing associations is just a nightmare. Um, also, uh, fixtures, especially like fixture files on 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 disk, it's very very they make it very easy to write yourself into a code smell where and you touched on this James where your test framework suddenly depends on the global state of the entire database like the number of records in a table um, 
and that's a code smell that I've become really, really sensitive to. And, and if, you're, if you're doing that, you need to see if you can't back away from your fixtures a little bit and try to do it more in factories. Yeah, and, and my experience is the same as James's, you know, where you, you have this uh, fixture set and then you change it just a little bit. And, you know, what I did initially when I ran into this problem was I actually, uh, I actually ran into a, a case where I was trying to program around it. So instead of saying there should be three records in the database, I would say get the number of records in the database. And then when I create something, check that there's one more. But the problem is, is then what you get into is you know, your your tests become so complicated that they're not specifying necessarily one state or one path. And so yeah. it can get to the point where your tests need to be tested. And and you're still depending on the global state of the database, right? right. Because you well, do that insert. And that's the whole problem. You're, de- you're depending on there not being a collision of a unique key. Yeah, exactly. So um, anyway, so yeah, it's it, it it does. It gets painful really quickly. Have you guys used fixtures since it had since Foxy fixtures came around? Because like people complain about hooking them up in like hooking up associations, and I really don't see that. No, I I probably haven't. Can you explain to us how Foxy fixtures hooks them up? That would probably be good for people to know. I so, I have used Foxy and had trouble, but go ahead. So all it does basically all it does is it it knows it looks at the associations on your models and generates IDs from that. So basically we used to have the fixtures used to be like okay so you know we belong this model belongs to whatever so you'd have to put in in your fixture file like a you know whatever underscore ID and then assign it some number and then then when you're trying to figure out this web of models you have to keep all these numbers in your head which is basically impossible. Yeah. But we've had all the fixtures have names, right? Like we give it, we give the record a name. So what you can do is you say like, well, this is the association, and here's the name of the record it's associated to. So you just provide that name, and then Rails calculates an ID for you and inserts it into the database with that ID. So you, all you have to do is remember, ah, you know, these are the list of the author, or you know, these are the list of the books for this author, right? And you just put the list of the book names. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, totally fine for me. You know, Fo- Foxy with a good set of ERB, um, like if you're actually leveraging ERB in your fixture files and you're using Foxy fixtures, you're really close to a factory at that point, um, right? Because you've got dynamic code, you've got you know interpretation and that sort of thing. And it's just more of a data-driven code model instead of a, a code-driven da- uh, model. The, yeah. the one problem I've had with Foxy that. Um, is the when your database is the interface and somebody else is specifying uh, the IDs of the records? Like, so here's IDs, you know, one thousand through one thousand one hundred. Uh, here's a hundred records in this table that came from this, you know, uh, data export. Um, Foxy wants to wants to dictate uh, what the IDs are, and so that that can run you into a headache. Oh yeah, I agree. And the, I, honestly, I think the real answer is like we don't. You know, I say I champion fixtures, but. Uh, the truth is, we use a mixture of fixtures and factories where it makes sense to use one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I can see that. I didn't know about the uh, being able to refer to objects by name, so I guess that shows you how long ago I moved away from fixtures. But uh, <laughs> it definitely does sound better. Um, I just really love with the factories being able to set things, and like I love how I can only specify the fields. I care about this time. James, when I'm creating are you, something. Are you testing your factories? 
Am I? I do not test my phone. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I see. I'm All right. Sit in the corner now. Thanks. I, I'm going to break in here, and uh, I, I I really want to get us back on topic. Um, <laughs> I know the future of Rails is the database. <laughs> Let me tell you the direction of Rails. It is north. Oh, great. <laughs> it's not not maybe north by northeast. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. The direction is CoffeeScript. CoffeeScript. There we go. We'll, we'll wind up writing everything in CoffeeScript. I want so to know wait. more about this DHH thing, this um, library that apparently he, he talked about it at the keynote recently. And he, you know, he was introducing like the CoffeeScript stuff and that. And he was like, oh, yeah, at 37 Signals, we're putting together this framework that like, heavily uses JavaScript and everything. And then he didn't mention it again. So oh, yeah. what, I'm intrigued what that is all about. I never dug into it more after that, but he didn't cover it in any depth. But they're building some JavaScript framework at 37 Signals, and they didn't say much else than that. I know it's called Cinco, but yes. that's all I That's know. the one. Yeah, it's supposed to be uh, mobile, mobile aware or something so that you can... I, I guess it's the JavaScript framework that they're using in their Rails apps so that when you access uh, the 37 Signals apps like Basecamp, from your mobile phone that uh, you know the, the the touch interface and stuff works and things like that that was my understanding but I could be totally off on that what would that buy you over say using jQuery touch good question I don't know uh, and and I don't know that they've released a lot of details about Cinco to be honest but I think that is one thing that is relevant to where rails is headed is you know the the mobile uh, the mobile arena. You know, we've been building our apps for web browsers for so long, and then we have these mobile web browsers that have these teeny tiny screens, and, you know, not the traditional mouse interface. You know, it's touch, or if you tap it twice, or if you touch it long, or hold it, or whatever, you know, um, it, it, it does different things. And so, you know, the, the interface that people are using to access our Rails apps isn't as well-defined as it would be for a traditional browser app. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm a little curious, too, as to if there are specific features in, in the upcoming Rails versions that, that handle that. Does anyone know anything about that? Well, I think, I think what's going to happen is we're going to get better. I think Rails is going to become more, like, much better at doing, providing APIs. Like, I'm not, you know, I... I'm speaking very vaguely here because I don't really, you know, it's kind of a foggy idea in my mind, but I think like the future of web is going to become more and more client side JavaScript based, I think. Mm -hmm. And that means that means that Rails applications are going to have to be really good at uh, serving up that JavaScript, but then providing APIs for that JavaScript too. So right. I'm not sure I'm not sure exactly like specifically how that's going to affect the framework, but um, it's absolutely something that we have to think about going forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have a, a question along those same lines um, and boy I really hope the answer isn't duh Dave it's already in Rails um, duh, but uh, yeah it's anyway learn the libraries right anyway <laughs> um, one direction that I'm seeing applications moving is they're moving away from uh, from REST from the representational state model to persistent connection uh, live streaming, you know, uh, you know, long duration sockets. 
um, that sort of thing. And my understanding with rails right now is that that's a bad idea because the processes are big and cumbersome. And so what you really want to do is proxy them out to something lightweight that can maintain that persistent socket. Is that the case in rails? Um, and if it is the case in rails, where will we go in the future? Will we see uh, an easy plug-in uh, ability like with rack to, to roll it out to something? Will we see something in rails itself, like, like active thingy that will let you persist that? Thingy. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm, I'm talking about like you you connect to uh, a mapping application and you get real time locations of like everybody near you and they're you're you're constantly sending AJAX updating your geocoded location and so yeah. is everyone else and you're getting those things and so it doesn't make sense to do that with REST and a pull you know constantly reloading the web page you you just want a socket that's going to stream you you know token four has moved to this location. Right, you're, yeah. t you're talking about web sockets. Right, yes. basically. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I was going with my earlier pie-in-the-sky request that I probably didn't explain very well, that, that basically what I was saying is I think nowadays we always have those extra things, you know, whether it's for background processing, which was just the first thing that popped into my head, or your more current example of web, web sockets or whatever. We always need that extra environment running feeding us constant information um, and uh, yeah I think I, I think you're right that that that's definitely where the web is going and so hopefully where rails is going to now didn't doesn't rails come with a, a streaming API is is that not something that you could use in a similar way I know it's not a socket but it's it's I, I can't uh, it's not exactly the same as doing web sockets if I remember correctly I don't which I don't. Well, I probably don't remember. But it's basically basically the way the streaming works is you you do have a socket open to the Rails process. Well, actually, that's not even true. You have a socket open to the proxy. So, for example, our for example our setup is um, nginx in front of uh, Unicorn, and on the back end, Unicorn always uses closed connections back to the nginx proxy. But you like the web browser keeps a persistent connection open with Nginx. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, is you keep the socket open, and then you send a request over the socket, and then and then Nginx decides who to delegate that to and requests it from Unicorn, which is okay because uh, hopefully your your connection between Engin Nginx and Unicorn should be very fast, mm -hmm. so you don't need to worry about latency there. But um, Nginx and Unicorn don't keep a socket open, but um, the client and Nginx keep the socket open and do multiple requests per socket. But this doesn't handle doing um, push data back to the user like, um, say, WebSockets would do. Right. Huh. So, so kind of along those lines, um, at the local RB meeting, uh, OK RB meeting, uh, one of our members has been working on this library, and I don't remember the name. I'll look it up, but uh, maybe it's real-time Rails. But uh, he's been working on this library where when you render a bunch of objects in a page, like, you know, you render a collection of objects, um, that then it, you know, uh, tracks those IDs, and as it renders them, it sets up a WebSocket to keep track of them 
uh, and changes on them. And then as changes happen back on the Rails and callbacks, it triggers via the WebSocket, and that data on the page gets updated via the WebSocket. So it's pretty neat stuff in that you can just render some things around a page and then, uh, and then uh, you know, it, it basically live updates uh, as that information becomes available for Rails. Uh, it's, it's pretty space-agey uh, just to kind of see it in action, and uh, it might be cool for Rails to look at something like that in the future. Oh, it looks like WebSockets are HTTP, so yeah, we could do this. It's possible. So I guess the other question is, is um, we're, we're increasingly in getting into a world where everything connects to everything. And so, um, and Aaron brought this up with the APIs, you know, better handling of APIs. What, what, what ideas do you have as far as what Rails could do better with providing APIs for external resources and accessing external APIs for its resources? Honestly, I can't, like, it's difficult for me to imagine right now because it's pretty easy today, like, for providing, you know, providing, like, JSON APIs and whatnot. But um, I just think we need to push the boundary of how easy it is to set up APIs and get good APIs up and running. Uh, I'm just not sure how yet. Mm-hmm. Anyone else have thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, when I'm designing them, I always, and maybe this is backwards, I don't know, but I always start with the URL, and then I work it out for that from that, how I want it to work and function. Uh, the URLs that, that I'm going to hit as part of the API, and I, I almost kind of wish there was a way to make Rails router work like that. Like I could sketch out a URL scheme and uh, and have it, you know, do certain things based on what I sketched out, but I, I'm not exactly sure what that would look like and stuff. That's just kind of the on on paper step I have to do beforehand to get ready for it. It would be kind of cool if that just you know was rolled in as part of uh, the router or something. Well, they but, go ahead. They don't frequently change that routing API, so uh, right. Yeah, probably one thing I think would be good is if. Um, like if there was a standard easy way in Rails to do uh, API versioning, like that's oh yeah, that's mm -hmm. a great point. Yeah, mm -hmm. and maybe that could be generalized to, um, uh, for example, you know, you could have a component in your URL in your routing, basically, where that component represents different versions, and and because of that, you could. I don't know, do something, send it to a different controller, but, you know, do something based on that action. Maybe even maybe even it's as simple as setting a uh, variable or something somewhere that you can check against which one you're supposed to be handling or something. But that that's kind of an interesting point and, and a very good point that's something people always end up doing manually. Mm -hmm. All right, well, um, we are almost out of time. I, I want to ask one more question. And I really just want a, a quick answer, unless, well, you, you can take as long as you want to answer, I guess, but uh, is Rails harder to use now than it was when you learned to program in Rails? Yes. No. Can we get well, a maybe? There, we covered it. <laughs> no. No. Okay, so uh, I we heard one yes and two no's. Um, Peter, why do you think it's harder to learn? Um, I guess perhaps I'm, fo I'm less focused on the why and just the fact that when I've been teaching people, it's 
I've, I've just noticed a lot more kind of friction with people that I've been trying to teach um, in recent times than a long time ago. And I don't know whether that's because I'm now further away from that, having you know been through the learning experience myself or not. But there are just a lot more things that people need to uh, juggle mentally to get a grip on it. And I think James possibly touched on it earlier when he said about the move to like the restful URLs, for example. You know, there was a time when it was all a lot more kind of Sinatra-esque in the way that you just defined every, you know, you could either have that pattern or you could just go into the routes file and define every single route separately if you wanted to, even though that's obviously not a great idea. We know that now. Um, to people who are coming into it new, they kind of, uh, you know, they like things like that. They like to get up and running and then they'll start to learn the best practices, which I think is probably how a lot of us learn. It's how I learn. My, you know, initial Rails code was absolutely abysmal. It wasn't following best practices at all and it's got better over time. So, uh, yeah, I think perhaps there is this um, emphasis now on doing things in a quite a structured, proper way of doing things. And it's a lot harder to fall off the rails, as it were. Okay. And Aaron, Peter, I'm, uh, I'm also going to suggest that uh, part of your problem, just a hypothesis, might be market fatigue. I think you've taught all the smart people, and uh, <laughs> so this is to be expected. <laughs> so now no, have those all the developers. Yeah. <coughs> Ouch. So, so Dave and Aaron, is it, is it then easier to learn, or is it the same? I, I'll, I'll give mine real quick, and then Aaron can give the definitive one. I think there's more <laughs> stack to learn, um, but I think it's easier to come to. Like, like, like Rails has kind of lowered the entry point of, of, you know, there's a lot more magic, which means there's a lot more opinions, but that means there's also a lot more convention. So you can sit down and you can start, and now you can build your blog in 12 minutes instead of in 15. And... But there is a lot more stack to learn. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, fair point that if you really want to master Rails from top to bottom, there, I think there's going to be more to do. Um, but the just to pick it up and run with it, I think it's, I think it's simpler. Yeah, right. that's basically, basically, that's what I was going to say. Is I think, I think um, we have, we have stuff like Bundler, which get your dependencies all installed and ready to go for you. Like this, this seems much easier than it used to be in the bad old days. And, uh, but, uh, I think it's easier to get up and running. I just think it's harder to master. Right. Okay. So. I, I will, uh, say that while I mostly agree with, uh, what Peter said, he, he basically echoed my thoughts perfectly. Uh, but I do agree with, uh, some of what Aaron said too. And like, uh, for example, when Bundler came out at, at first, I, I think I really didn't know what to think about it. And the more I use it, the more I'm just convinced it is the best thing that ever happened to Rails applications. Mm -hmm. Because you put it on the server, you know, you bundle, install, and just forget about it, you know. And I'm I'm currently in my job right now, moving an old Rails application up to Rails three, and just the dependency management to get that old application running on my computer was amazing. You know, mm -hmm. I can't believe we used to do that regularly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Um, let's let's go ahead and jump into the picks. Um, we'll go ahead and start. Uh, let's go. Let's go alphabetical this time. Go ahead, Aaron. Amazon Prime, get it. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. I, I I actually so so one of my hobbies is um, sausage making. <laughs> and, you got to do something and, with those mushrooms, huh? Yes, exactly, and I and I wanted a I wanted a smoker, 
so that I could smoke my sausages, and I bought it on Amazon with Amazon Prime, and it will show up tomorrow. So I am extremely happy with this service. So, yes. Mm, okay. I have to agree with that. That's like one of my best company write-offs ever. <laughs> what, what do you get for it? I know you get uh, two-day shipping. Is there anything else to it that you like? Two-day uh, shipping for free is, is the thing that can't be beat. Yeah, and I think, like, basically, two-day shipping two-day shipping for free is just so good. And for the price, like, I will pay for it. It will pay for itself when Christmas rolls around. Right. Yeah, that's very true. All right, was there anything else? We all kind of chimed in on you. <laughs> no, no, that's it. Okay. Um, I think I'm next. Um I've had a few people ask me what I use for my podcast recording, and so I'm, I'm just going to throw a few things out there for that. Um, the first one that I use is uh, I do all my hosting at Libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. And uh, it's a paid service, but um, basically it takes away all of my worries about bandwidth, and uh, it, get, it gets the downloads done pretty fast. Um, another thing that I'm doing is the recording that I'm doing uh, goes into a digital audio recorder. Um, and I'm, I'm doing a Skype mix minus over an, I'm, an iMic. And uh, it goes into the digital audio recorder, which is an Ederol, um, R, R RH09 or whatever. It's the HD version of the Ederol, which they don't make anymore. Now you have to get the, the O5 or something. But... Uh, Anyway, the Ederol is really nice because it actually has a microphone on the top, so I can actually just walk outside, hold it up by my face, and I can just talk into it. Um, it records it all to uh, an SD card that I can either put into my computer or I just plug the, the USB cable in more often than not, and uh, it takes care of that for me. And then on my iPad, um, I'm using an app called Resounder. Uh, to queue up the music and stuff and so and that's pretty much it the only other piece of hardware I've got is my microphone which I'm not super fond of so I'm not going to tell you what it is and uh, I'm using the um, Behringer Zenix uh, 802 um, mixer and it's awesome so I'll put links to all that equipment in the show notes and if you're thinking about starting a podcast all you really need is a, a microphone and you know, and some software to record, but um, if you want to get all fancy, then then that's what I'm using. Um, I guess Dave's next. Uh, okay, yeah. So I uh, was deathly ill last week, and I've actually been sick for about the past three weeks. And so, if you are listening to this podcast uh, through the wonders of modern technology, you probably have access to my pick, which is First World Medicine. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the past three weeks, I have been That's absolutely awesome. wonderful and grateful for expectorants, uh, antihistamines, <laughs> decongestants, and antibiotics. Uh, and in specifically, I want to give a big shout out to uh, to my, my my good friend amoxicillin, uh, 500 milligrams, two tablets twice a day until the infection in my lungs goes away. Oh man! <laughs> so yeah, shout out for uh, doctors everywhere. Thank you. And that was a public service announcement that's to right. vaccinate your children. That's that's my oh, dude, dude, don't even start with me. Vaccinate your freaking kids. Yeah, get over your freaking superstitions and vaccinate. What are you your talking kids. about? That's how that's how the government controls us. You didn't know this. It's, Come on. It, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it causes <laughs> autism. That's right. Oh, man, right. Now, now we're really going to get flamed. If we don't get hate mail over that, vaccines do not cause autism. Go vaccinate your kids. That's right. Yeah. Well, really, go go read the science. Anyway, James, what um, are your picks? So, so a couple of years ago, I declared war on Photoshop, um, and I think I'm losing because I've replaced it with uh, about five programs instead of the one that I used to use. Uh, but I'm much happier now, so I, that's how I tell myself it's okay. Uh, but anyways, I've learned some cool things along the way as I do it, uh, and uh, I'm going to have to recommend at least two of the programs that I used to replace it. Um, I, I used Pixelmator for a while, and it has kind of a nice interface and stuff, uh, but there were always some things I'm lacking, so I always had to go to Acorn uh, to do the other things that I couldn't do in Pixelmator. And then as time goes on, I've learned that I'm just doing everything I need in Acorn. Uh, so it's finally come up and taking care of those things. It's not as sexy as Pixelmator, uh, but it's definitely functional. It's got great filters and stuff in it now. So uh, if you want a graphics program that's not like insanely draconian, I recommend Acorn. And then the other graphics program that I've actually just used back since like the Mac OS 9 days and can't get over is a Graphic Converter. And that program is just absolutely, I swear, I've thrown images at that that I have no idea what are. If even if I see a file, I don't even know what it is. I usually just try to open it in Graphic Converter first because even if it's Bob's image format, Graphic Converter opens it. It's like they, they have a time machine and they went into the future and predicted all possible image formats and all of them are already in graphic converter and they were like 15 years ago. So it's amazing. You can open anything with it, I swear. So uh, graphic converter and Acorn are, are two of the tools I use to avoid ever supporting Photoshop again. <laughs> so I have to chime in here and let you know, James, that... Uh I have a James Picks tally going. It's currently at thirty dollars. If I hadn't already upgraded Acorn, it'd probably be at eighty right now. That's awesome. Yeah, I went, um, I, I went and bought one of your, one of your games last last week. So which game? I bought Lost Cities. Awesome game. Great choice. Yeah, it should be in the mail today or tomorrow. So we'll see. I told my wife it was for her, but it's not. So I'm costing people money now. Now I'm going to feel pressured to find cheap uh, recommendations. That's awesome. No, no, no. Good recommendations. I, I, I'm enjoying them. All right, Peter. What what are your picks? You guys are way down in the alphabet. I've just noticed. James, like J, not even halfway. I'm like way out there on my own. Um, yeah, I just wanted to like second the Amazon Prime one um, that Aaron mentioned. Although, just to make you green, here in the UK, um, what you get for your money is next day guaranteed delivery um, just because it's absolutely tiny little island which means I spent so much money on Prime that actually I kind of hate it in a way I like it of course but the fact is I can just go on there click and bang it's going to be here by midday tomorrow so um, up to I think 11pm actually they'll do that so yeah small country some of the benefits wow. um, yeah 20% tax not so good um, things that I just wanted to uh, just my actual proper picks um, coffee script uh, you might have noticed I've mentioned this a couple of times I actually got to play with it last weekend in full, I've literally spent the whole weekend with it at a hack event, um, putting some stuff together, and I've kind of fallen in love with it. So I'm probably going to end up talking about that more in future, and uh, I've been enjoying that so far. And in terms of an actual project to um, just point out, I wanted to point out David Dollar's Foreman, 
because it ties into something that was being mentioned earlier about having uh, managing multiple processes from a Rails app. Um, what you do with Foreman is you can create a file called a proc file, which I believe is a little bit similar to how, what you can do in, on the new Heroku stack, although I've not played with that yet. But you can create this proc file where you define all of the different processes that kind of back up your Rails process. So, you know, things like rescue workers and, you know, schedulers and things like that. And then you can run that locally with a Foreman start and it will start all of those processes and let you see all of the logs of those um, sort of in a single stream. And then you can actually export it to production, which will export it to Ubuntu's upstart system or to a normal initd system. Um, for rolling it out into production. So this might be something that would be very interesting to see it perhaps um, become a bit more mature, get more development, and maybe integrate with uh, Rails at some point down the line. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. All I right. think that is what Heroku's using. I may be wrong, but I believe it is what they're using, um, and it is definitely what I was trying to refer to earlier. Yes, Foreman. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for... Uh Another great podcast. Uh, I, I, and I, I know our audience really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk. Um, we had a major tangent there with uh, the fixtures, but I think there's a lot of good content there. And I think we really did go into some of the things that we're going to see uh, Rails have to deal with one way or the other. Um, our panelists again today are Aaron Patterson, uh, David Brady, Howdy, uh, Peter Cooper. Totally awesome. James Edward Gray. Bye-bye, all. And I'm Charles Maxwood. Um, you can get the show notes at rubyrogues.com, and uh, you can find us in iTunes. And, uh, again, just, just like to ask you to leave us a review and uh, let us know what you think. And Also, uh, vote for show topics. Yeah, we took this topic out of the votes. So. Yeah, absolutely. This was the top topic. So, yeah, go to rubyrogues.com, click Request a Topic. And then vote something up or add your own in. And uh, that'll do it. We'll catch you next week.